Hello, friends. Welcome. I have a treat for you today. I'm chatting with veteran astronaut Ellen Ochoa. She is the first Latina woman in space. She has flown in space four times. She has over a thousand hours in orbit. And she is the former director of the Johnson Space Center. She's actually just a delight. You're going to love listening to this episode. You should listen to this episode with your kids if you have them. I think you are going to love hearing her story. Space is inherently interesting. And I've often joked that if it were up to me to explore space, well, we're just going to have to keep wondering what's up there. (laughs) But I absolutely loved hearing from her and I cannot wait to dive in. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am very excited to be chatting with Ellen Ochoa today, who is an astronaut, or who was an astronaut. I assume you're not actively in space each and every day. (laughs) That's correct. (laughs) But you have been to space four times. You've been in orbit for like a thousand hours. That's incredible. Well, thank you. It it was uh, an amazing opportunity. All of my flights, these were on the space shuttle, of course, were nine, 10, or 11 days. And at the time, that seemed like a lot. But of course, now... Our NASA astronauts are in space six months or even up to a year. I absolutely want to hear more about your time in space, but let's go back in time first to Ellen as a young girl. What were you like as a child? What would your parents say you were like? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I loved reading. So I was always reading books. Then when I was 10, I started playing the flute, certainly both under the influence of of my mom, who kind of always wished she had played an instrument and she started us all on piano when we were younger than that. But that became a a big hobby, very serious one. I even thought about pursuing music and um, I still play my flute to this day and I got a chance to play my flute in space. So that was probably the main outside activity I did outside of school. Would you describe yourself as like a nerdy child or a typical <laughs> child? Would your parents be like, uh, I, don't, I don't know about Ellen. She's <laughs> just, <laughs> she's extra nerdy. Or did that love of science come later in life? You know, actually, I wasn't, I wasn't into science at all as a kid. Oh. Even in high school, I think I only took one science class, biology, because it was required. And somehow I had this idea that I just wasn't interested in it. So I came to all that later. Fortunately, I did like math and I always did well in math in school. And so that was something that I, you know, I took as much math as was offered at my high school. And once in college, that was what sort of ended up steering me toward the science and engineering field. So I would say I was a very good student. I took it seriously, pretty I would say quiet in general, although Mm -hmm. certainly around family or good friends, I would say pretty typical. I love that your love of science didn't necessarily make itself known at age seven. I I think (laughs) sometimes parents today are like, well, my child's never going to be an astronaut. 
they're not interested in science, you know, and they have like a third grader. I do think there's this increasing tendency towards encouraging your children to specialize in something, to specialize Mm. in a sport, in an instrument, in a subject, uh, and to begin to steer their lives in that direction, you know, very early on. You see it especially in athletics. I'm not saying that there's no validity to any of those choices, but I just love hearing that you you can come to that decision later and still be like the director of the of, of <laughs> NASA organization, NASA right. facility. And, you know, I was 11 when the Apollo 11 astronauts landed on the moon. So, mm. um, of course, everybody was talking about it, watching it. You know, I was fascinated, but everybody was. And mm-hmm. there were no women astronauts. And even though there were some women working at NASA, I certainly didn't know about any of them. And so, Nobody would have ever asked an 11-year-old girl, oh, is this something you want to grow mm-hmm, up to right, do? Right. And it certainly didn't enter my head at that point at all, that mm. there might be a career trajectory for me that would include NASA or space or anything like that. Mm. Yeah, totally. The popularity of the book and movie Hidden Figures, et cetera. Right. Like we're just now beginning to fully <laughs> exactly. understand how many women actually were crucial to those missions, but that was not front and center right. at, at all. This was like manly work. It's the men going into space that I, yeah, I totally know what you're saying. Like it wasn't even necessarily on your radar. Like that's something no, girls right. could do. Exactly. Okay. So you finish college and you decide you're going to go to grad school. At that point, when you went to grad school, were you thinking, I would love to get a job for NASA someday? Uh, It was still a little bit early for that. You know, I changed my major several times. I really wasn't sure what I was really wanted to focus on, but I thought, well, I should at least go explore some fields that use the math that I've been learning. And so I went to talk to a couple of professors. Uh, One was a professor in engineering, electrical engineering. And it was clear he was not at all interested in having me in his department. (laughs) You know, he's like, well, we had a woman come through here once, but, you know, it's a really difficult course of study. And I I don't think you'd be interested, which, of course, was ironic because I showed up specifically because I thought I might be interested. But then I got a very different reception from the physics professor I talked to. He said he was glad to hear I was interested in physics. He told me about some careers you could have if you majored in physics, which was actually really important because I didn't have a good idea of what a physics degree could lead to. And so he laid out some possible paths. And then when he found out I was finishing up the calculus series, he said, well, that's great. You've learned the language of physics. So if you started into our classes next semester, you could concentrate on the concepts. And most of the students will be trying to learn those two things simultaneously. Mm. So I think you'd do really well. And I ended up majoring in it and minoring in math. And I was able to get a, you know some summer jobs where I worked in a research lab. And that's why, you know, I got motivated to go on to graduate school because I thought I'd want to pursue research. Uh, so I went off to Stanford and near the end of my first year there is when the space shuttle flew for the first time. And a couple of years later, now I'm in the middle of getting my PhD, uh, is when Sally Ride flew, you know, the mm-hmm. first American woman in space. And she had been a physics major and she had gone to Stanford. And I really think I needed to see sort of all those things in common for it to really come to me that, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is something I I could pursue. 
so I decided that as soon as I got my doctorate, I'd send in my application to NASA. But honestly, really never expected to hear anything back. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see how it would seem like a long shot. Exactly. Right? <laughs> like, a very like, long shot. Yeah, not that many people are chosen to first of all, work for NASA uh, in a space program capacity, or even later to become an astronaut. It is an extremely long shot. So obviously you had something special though. So when you did apply and they called you or, you know, sent you a letter or whatever it was, what was that moment like for you? (laughs) Well, first of all, it was three years later. Um, (laughs) So, you know, NASA doesn't do a selection every year. And so it can be three years, four years, five years between selections. It was the first time I'd ever been on a NASA center, any NASA center, much less Johnson Space Center, the home of human spaceflight. Spent uh, almost a week there. We had a lot of medical exams, mm-hmm. uh, but a chance to talk to current astronauts. Again, the first time I'd gotten to talk to any of them sort of one-on-one. Visited a lot of the training facilities, had an interview with the astronaut selection committee, and made me want to be an astronaut even more, but I wasn't selected that year. However, NASA encouraged me to keep my application updated so that I could be considered again, you know, in the next selection, which was three years later. And that was when I was selected. So it was actually five years after I turned in my application. Did the Challenger disaster give you pause? Were you like, I don't know, or were did you still feel confident that NASA would figure it out, that they wouldn't repeat the same mistake? What was going through your mind when Challenger happened? I was still sure it was something I wanted to do. And I did trust that NASA would look into it and understand what happened and fix that problem. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Them. 
you finally get the news that you are going <laughs> to go and your family's right. all excited and you're like, this is my moment. This is a dream come true. What is the training even like? What do, what do you have to do to get ready to go into space? Well, there's a lot of different aspects to the training and NASA selects astronauts in groups or classes, right? So my class had 23 astronauts, fairly big class, five women. And we spend most of the first year together. So we study lots of things. Some of it's just kind of catching everybody up on the various different kinds of science and engineering that are going to be particularly important for us, like reviewing orbital mechanics, and particularly when you're going to rendezvous with a spacecraft, what that might mean. And there are some physicists in the groups who are very familiar with it. Everybody has some kind of science and engineering background, but not necessarily in that field. And then we start to study the shuttle systems in detail. You know, we get a big stack of workbooks, a couple feet tall, and we were supposed to study those and then apply it when we went into the simulator. Well, I'd been, I'd spent 10 years in college. So that was very familiar to me. I'm like, I know how to study. I know how to learn. But there were other aspects that were not nearly as familiar to me, but maybe more to others, you know, a lot of the more operational things. So we needed to learn how to fly in high performance jets. Now I had a private pilot's license, but I was certainly not a professional pilot. So I wasn't going to be flying front seat, but I was flying in the aircraft, could certainly take the stick once we were 200 feet off the ground or have it until we were about 200 feet before landing. So did learn to fly a lot of it, but a lot of it is about the communication and the navigation and of course the teamwork, you know, between mm -hmm. you and the front seater. And that's all very applicable to the astronaut job and being on a spacecraft as well. We had to learn how to land under a parachute on land and in water and, you know, learn how to signal a helicopter and what the sensation might feel like if you actually eject out of an aircraft. You know, so all of those things, a little bit of land survival and water survival. My classmates who had been in the military and had been through all of this before, you know, they were just out there kind of having a good time. Mm. How long does the training take? Well, the part that I just described was kind of the first year. Then in the second year, we were training about half time and then assigned jobs in the astronaut office that were supporting the ongoing shuttle program. So the training in the second year was a little bit more specialized. The pilot astronauts would start to fly in the shuttle training aircraft. So they'd start practicing how to land a shuttle at the mm -hmm. end of a flight. And then mission specialists like me started to do things like robotic arm training and spacewalk training. So then okay. essentially at the end of the second year, we're, we're sort of basically trained. And then I, I got assigned to a flight. So then I started to roll into actual training with my crew for my mission. So take us back to the very first, the morning of your first space flight. <laughs> what were you thinking and feeling? Well, uh, it was a lot of an excitement. And actually, we were launching at 1.30 in the morning. So we were getting up, I forget, maybe around 8 in the evening. So mm -hmm. going to bed about noon, getting up at 8 for the last few days before, so that we were shifting our bodies toward the schedule that we needed to be on. And looking forward to it, I mean, cer a certain amount of nervousness, but it wasn't about 
a personal risk. It was more about really wanting to do the job well. Mm-hmm. You know, you've trained for a year and of course, more basically a couple of years before that. We all have a variety of different jobs to do on the flight. So there's a lot of different kinds of things to remember and to think about. So kind of reviewing, you know, some procedures or last minute things. That's what we've been doing the last few days as we've been in quarantine and crew quarters. And then, you know, it's time to eat breakfast and and suit up and and head out to the launch pad. And mm. and you just kind of got, you know, once you crawl into the spacecraft, this is like I'm in the simulator. I've done this mm-hmm. many times before. The ground team is prepared. I think that helps prevent you from being just kind of a little bit overwhelmed mm-hmm. <laughs> by, mm-hmm. by the moment. Yeah, totally. Uh, you can't let your mind go there. You can't be like, exactly. now I'm going to think <laughs> about everything that could go wrong. Like you can't allow yourself to to do that. So what does it feel like you're kind of sitting on your back? It has to feel like an insane amount of G-forces lifting <laughs> off the ground. Is that accurate? Well, what I would say is it, it does sort of leap off the launch pad and you do get a variety of different G-forces during the launch and the launch part until the engines cut off is about eight and a half minutes, but is not as high Gs as, as many people think. And that's mm. because the shuttle design itself with the Delta wings, the engineers sort of needed to protect the shuttle itself. And so the rocket was designed to not go over three Gs, mm-hmm. um, you know, not because of the people inside, but because of the shuttle mm. and not wanting to put large loads particularly on the wings. So you get to that three Gs at a couple different times during the launch, maybe at about a minute and a half in until two minutes. And then the the solid rocket boosters, the two white rockets on either side Mm -hmm. of the main tank separate. Then you go back down to almost one G. Mm. And also all the vibration goes away because the solid motors are the ones that are really causing a lot of the vibration Mm -hmm. and the liquid engines that are on the shuttle orbiter itself actually run pretty smooth. That was almost the scariest part of the whole launch for me is when we went back down to just over 1G because it felt like we'd stopped. And I thought that cannot be good. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, you could tell by through all the instrumentation that we were still going up. And so, you know, after five seconds, it's like, okay, it's all good. Mm -hmm, (laughs) We're still mm -hmm. going. And then it builds back up to about three Gs for, say, the last minute and a half or so. So it feels like somebody that weighs three times as much as you is sitting on your chest. Mm -hmm. It makes it a little bit hard to breathe. And if you have to lean forward or or put your hands up for some reason, that can be difficult because you're working against that force. People have been on roller coasters. They've been mm-hmm. under much higher Gs, but it's just for a second or two, mm-hmm, or you mm-hmm. know, and um, and it's also usually kind of uh, vertical through your head, whereas ours is through our chest. So mm-hmm. it's it's sort of a different kind of acceleration than most people have felt before. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, when the engines shut off, you go instantaneously from these three Gs to zero G. <laughs> And and so that's a, a really interesting transition. And your your arms just kind of up on their own just sort of float up a little bit. I had a, a pencil on a string attached to my uh, kneeboard, and that just sort of floats up. And you know, then you're ready to start the next phase of the mission. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you? could learn from the world's best. 
all in one place. Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes. You can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up, and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house and then when people come over they're like um your house smells weird there's a solution for that and it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant it is taking care of the smell at the source by using lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet it is a whole body deodorant it is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit lumideodorant.com and use code SHARON. 
What was it like to look down at Earth? Well, it's, you know, it's just spectacular. I mean, that and being in a microgravity environment are the two things that are just so completely different mm-hmm. about being in space than, mm-hmm. than anything that you can do on Earth. And I don't think you ever really get tired of looking at the Earth and you're orbiting every hour and a half. So there's always something new and different to see. It's just spectacular. I can't imagine that moment where you're like, I am looking down at (laughs) my planet. I wonder if you were so caught up in doing your job and making sure you're doing your job well, that it was difficult to sit and just like sit there with your mouth hanging open. Or did you have those moments where you were like, dang, look at that. Look at that space rock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I will say you are really busy. And I'll also say that after I came back from my first flight and people would ask me questions like, well, what did it feel like the moment the engines cut off? Or what did it feel like the first time you looked down on the earth? Or a lot of what I thought was, man, I was, I was so busy. Like I, I didn't take the time to sort of consciously think about it. So I made a list of questions before my second flight so that I would be much more mm-hmm. <laughs> deliberate mm-hmm. Um, about thinking about those things. But I do remember on my first flight. So on the first day and a half or so of that flight, first couple of days, we were pointing the payload bay towards the sun because we, we were studying the Earth's atmosphere. And part of the information that we were collecting was the amount of light coming from the sun in different wavelengths. And because of that, the earth was moving around in the windows. So we weren't looked like we weren't looking directly down on the earth. Mm -hmm. And so you could see it. And I thought, oh, this is fantastic. But then um, I got up on the the morning of flight day three, going up to the flight deck and looking out the overhead windows, which were now directly facing toward the earth. And I was I was completely blown away. I was like, oh, this is what everybody's mm-hmm. talking about. Of course, I'd seen photos from lots of other astronauts, but it was just so much more vivid looking out those windows than anything I'd ever seen in a photograph. So, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I do remember that moment. What is the most challenging part hmm. of space flight? Just based on your experience, is it eating the the <laughs> you know, like we all watch the Sesame Street things where it's like, we're going to eat this tube of glop. You know what I mean? Like, I don't even know how, much, how true that is. Is it trying to sleep in a in a weightless atmosphere? Is it being away from Earth? Like, what what's the most difficult part? I would say for me, it was just the mental energy that you expended throughout the whole day and everything that you do. All of the operational things that you do. You're following a checklist, a procedure. Every single step is important. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was doing some things like, you know, I was the primary robotic arm operator. So, you know, one of the days used the arm to lift a science satellite up out of the payload bay and deploy it into orbit. And there was a very, very specific procedure for that. And then a couple of days later, we came back, we rendezvoused with it, and then I needed to grab it and put it back in the payload bay. And, and you know, literally every second, you're just really, really concentrating on that. But the, even as you say, you know, heating up the food or eating the food or getting ready for bed, it, it wasn't that 
they were difficult. You just need to be really methodical. And you want to make sure that you're not flinging food around the cabin <laughs> inadvertently. You know, mm -hmm. you need to be very deliberate, very methodical, thinking through each step. And when you do that for, you know, 16 hours a day, no matter what you're doing, going to the bathroom, you've got to be very, very careful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. You're just mentally exhausted and you're going from one type of activity, science to robotics to preparing dinner to, there were some secondary experiments we were working on. And each one, you kind of had to remember all of those things that your trainers had told you about that very specific activity. To me, it was, it was a huge challenge that I really enjoyed, you know, learning all that and then being able to put it into practice. Mm, yeah, totally. I can absolutely see what you're saying, that it's incredibly rewarding, but also human bodies have limits that it is a very challenging to be <laughs> on, you know, like right. mentally very focused for 18 hours a day or 16 hours a day. Right. Most of us want to veg out on Instagram for at least <laughs> two to three hours a day. <laughs> you know, like that was a tough meeting. Oh, I got to get some TikTok. In, you know what I mean? So I, I absolutely know I can picture at least what you're talking about, how there is no phoning it in. There is no like, you know what? It's good enough. There's no good enough. It has to be done correctly on the exactly. space <laughs> spacecraft. <laughs> and you, you, uh, I would imagine because there is so much teamwork, you also feel the weight of like, I can't let anybody else down. I can't let myself down. I can't exactly. let my, my crew members down. I can't can't let NASA down. I can't let the country down. I need to perform at my best this time. Yes, that's exactly yeah. what I was thinking about. Mm -hmm. And particularly when I was using the robotic arm and needed to capture the satellite, all of the data that it had collected on the solar wind during the two days it was out free flying was all captured on the spacecraft. So mm -hmm. unless you brought it back home, there was nothing. For nothing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And so I, I literally was thinking about the scientists that had spent several years of their lives, you know, helping to develop the instruments and that were looking forward to the data and thinking like, I cannot let these people down. I know you had four space flights in total. Were you mostly operating robotic arms and doing experiments on all four of your flights? Did you have other jobs or other roles on your subsequent flights? I did have other roles. So on my first two flights, I were really focused on the science, studying the Earth's atmosphere, the problem of ozone hole and ozone depletion. And the science and the robotics were probably the two main jobs. On my third and fourth flights, they were part of assembling the International Space Station Program. Mm -hmm. And also on those flights, I was the flight engineer. So that is the person who works with the commander and pilot in all the dynamic phases of flight. So launch, landing, rendezvousing with the space station, undocking, especially in training, you spend a lot of time together working through those because if something's going to go wrong, those are the times in flight where you have very little time to mm -hmm. actually respond. So you have to be prepared to understand what's gone wrong and to work around that in a very quick amount of time. Mm -hmm. And again, I thought that was hugely fun. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love yeah. I love I love the training. So I loved being in that role of, of flight engineer. And then got to operate the station robot arm and, and move a spacewalking crew member around, which is different than just a satellite because you're mm -hmm. taking direction from that person on the end of the arm and you're constantly kind of changing spatial coordinates in your head because sometimes 
the person saying, well, move me space station forward. And other times they're doing it in their own body coordinates, move me in toward the spacecraft. And they may be upside down and in some weird configuration. So you're you're kind of doing these mental gymnastics a little bit to make sure you're you're moving it correctly. And then on one of my flights, our main job was to transfer supplies into the space station. This was before anybody was living on board. So we were preparing it. And so my job was the essentially the person responsible for making sure all the transfers happened and that all of the equipment got stowed in the proper place on Mm. on the space station. Oh my gosh. So interesting. I feel like I could just ask questions about what, what is it like in space all day long? (laughs) Um, (laughs) You went on to become the director of the Johnson Space Center. And I wonder if you could speak a little bit to people who feel like perhaps spending money on a space program is not worth it. Like, why should we spend money on a space program in your estimation? Having been to space four times, having worked for, had a long career at NASA, why should we spend money on a space program? Well, it is about benefiting people on Earth. I mean, (laughs) you know, that's what we're doing. Part of it is about expanding scientific knowledge. Part of it is supporting sort of our national leadership and our national posture, both mm-hmm. showing developing t- new technology that we can do things as a country that haven't been done before, or other things that actually develop a new economy. And we're really seeing that right now, if you think about what the space economy is today and mm-hmm. how many how many new companies are getting involved in different activities that all grew out of what NASA has done for many years. And that that was the whole idea, that there would be a market that develops for this. Part of it is about leadership. And I think the International Space Station Program is a great example of that. You know, We worked with four other space agencies representing 15 countries to develop this laboratory in space that would essentially do research. You know, a lot of it's medical research that can be used um, anywhere. And more than 100 countries have been involved in it somehow now, either science that we're doing, you know, a scientist from those countries, or maybe an educational activity where we've involved those countries. So that really does make it very international. Mm. And then I would say, finally, inspiration. You know, I think NASA for decades has been that organization that people, certainly across the US, but actually around the world, has said, Okay, they take on challenges. They challenge their employees to do things that haven't done before and to really step up. And because they can do it, I should set high goals for myself. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, and I think people have looked to NASA for inspiration ever since the 60s. And that's still the case. I, Mm -hmm. I mean, of course, I get to interact with students and, you know, lots of other people continue to do outreach, even though I'm, I'm retired from NASA. And it's still the case that it really serves that purpose. Mm. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. When NASA landed the Mars rover on Mars, Mm -hmm. and it was Mm -hmm. like that moment to me, I was literally, I was watching it in my car, just tears pouring down my face. Just the inspiration of human ingenuity. I love it. I mean, yes. It brings tears to my eyes just thinking about it. I find just that aspect of it incredibly inspirational. I, I totally agree. And um, I got to be at the Jet Propulsion Lab for the Curiosity landing. And it was hugely exciting. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, been in 
Johnson Space Center's mission control for many, many different kinds of activities now. I feel just really, really fortunate to have worked at NASA. And, you know, I kind of have this NASA luggage tag on my luggage, so which I don't think about that much anymore. But I travel quite a bit when people see that. They always want to talk about it. And they see it in a very positive light. And, and that's a really good feeling. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week. And it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You have, as of this moment, <laughs> I'm sure there will probably be more in the future, seven schools named after you. What an incredible honor. First it of is. all, yes. Uh, as a longtime teacher, I know how much goes into selecting the name of a school. It is not a decision that communities take lightly. They're not going to name a school after a serial killer accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> having a school named after you, let alone having seven schools named after you, what does that mean to you? 
long before the the first school that I heard about that was named after me, you know, as I went around and talked about my career, education was always a key part of what I talked about because certainly it was a key to me being selected as an astronaut and having the kind of career that I had. Education and learning was important to my parents. My mother in particular was just somebody that loved learning her entire life. She didn't have a chance to go to college when she was young. But as she was raising five kids, she would take one college class a semester at our local university, which is also where I ended up going, San Diego State. And 20 years later, in fact, two years after I graduated from San Diego State, she graduated. But the whole time I was growing up, she would be talking about her classes, doing homework, but she was always excited to learn new things. So Mm -hmm. that, that was just always something big, important. And doing well in school, or I would say being diligent about working at our homework and learning was important. So I would totally agree. I don't think there's any higher honor I've ever received Mm -hmm. than having a school named after me and realizing and hoping that then that the kids, you know, for the next however many decades who go through that school take some pride and some inspiration mm-hmm. from that and, may, and maybe take education more seriously. Mm, I, I totally feel that. You mentioned that when you were young, it didn't even occur to you that you mm-hmm. could become an astronaut, that that was an opportunity that girls could have. Right. And I think we've made quite a bit of progress <laughs> over the last few decades where women now realize that these things are within their reach, that they can become things of great importance professionally. But yet there are still too few women in Mm -hmm. leadership positions, and there are too few women in high-level science careers. And I wondered if you could speak to that a little bit. Why do you think that is, and what can Hmm. we do to fix that? Certainly just culturally. There's a, a long history of, first of all, women being prohibited from a lot of different kinds of careers. And then even when that started to open up, People really didn't picture scientists and engineers Mm -hmm. when they thought about women. And I will say it's not just women. There are other underrepresented groups as well. And and since I'm the first Latina in space, I often talk to uh, Hispanic Latinx communities. And and it's very much the same way throughout that community where they... Mm -hmm. They don't have a history of going into those fields, often sometimes individually explicitly discouraged, but other times it's just the cultural, the fact that they never see anybody Uh (laughs) like them in those fields. And there's actually a a fair amount of research, and and there's really three things that you can do to help get over that. Uh, One of them is role models. One of them is mentoring. And one of them is hands-on activities where students actually get the chance. And by hands-on, that can mean coding as well, because software is something that's pretty associated with these careers and and from which these underrepresented groups often don't have the same opportunities. But working on something where they actually get to work with hardware or software or think about a problem they want to solve, maybe something that either they're interested in or they see is important in their community, you know, the quality of the water or, you know, something like that. 
is is what can get students interested. And mm. I'm working with a publisher and I'm going to be publishing a series of five bilingual children's books, one for each letter of STEAM, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math. And so mm. the science one is out and it's called We Are All Scientists. And my thought process as I was writing this book was, what do I wish I had known about science when mm -hmm. I was little? And maybe I would have gotten interested in it a lot sooner. And Really, science is about curiosity and about creativity in terms of the questions you might think of asking or how you might think of answering them. And I think those are things that kids, including girls, have in spades when they're young. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so the idea was young kids to start to think of themselves as scientists very young because of the fact that they're curious Science is about discovering new things. Engineering is about solving problems. You're often working in teams. You're trying to help people with the problems that you solve. Mm -hmm. I think those are things that appeal to everybody. Mm -hmm. And yet they're not often portrayed like that. Mm -hmm. And so we're not getting everybody sort of involved or pushing them to at least try it and understand whether it's something that they, may, they might want to study more. Mm. And you mentioned too, that you didn't even realize that this was a career that you could pursue until you saw representation of <laughs> exactly. women in the field. Representation right. matters. As you mentioned, role models, it matters. Mm -hmm. Having somebody who is Latina or African-American or a woman or, you know, whatever it is, right. it matters to children. It helps them to be able to imagine themselves in that role and realize what is possible for them. Yeah, absolutely. My own story bears that out, just as you point out. If you could send one message to, let's say, a fifth grade child. I often <laughs> think back to my own fifth grade, Sharon, who was real curious, but often got scolded in school for, for asking too many questions. <laughs> Um, <laughs> now I ask people questions for a living. Um, <laughs> so there, <laughs> so there, take that. Um, so if you could send a word of encouragement or a message to today's fifth graders, what would it be? The first thing I would tell them is we need you. There's lots of challenges to solve in this world and there's lots of things still to discover. And we need, we need that talent. We need people with different kinds of ideas, different experiences, different brains. And we've excluded too many of those people for too long. And so I would say we need you. And then I would say it's really rewarding. It's interesting. It can really engage you. And I think for a career where you spend most of your waking hours, uh, something that really engages you is a goal and you can actually make a living at it as well, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is nice another, big goal, mm -hmm. another big goal, another big goal. So those are things that maybe mm -hmm. I wouldn't have thought about when I was in mm -hmm. fifth grade. I think we tend to overlook how rewarding careers in this field can be. We think mm -hmm. of like high reward careers as being high touch with other humans. Like it's very rewarding to be a nurse or a physician. And that is mm -hmm. rewarding. Of course, yeah, it's re course. rewarding to be a teacher. Like those things are rewarding. But I think we often overlook how rewarding these kinds of careers can be because you really are not just changing the trajectory of history, but you are, as you mentioned, working on projects that directly 
directly benefit humanity. Mm-hmm. So exactly. not only is it interesting, not only is it a job, a place you can actually get a job and that feed, <laughs> puts food on the table, it also can be a tremendously rewarding career. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for being here today. This was fantastic. Fifth grade Sharon, love <laughs> talking to you. <laughs> well, it was so fun talking with you, Sharon, Aww. and kind of takes me back. And uh, I really enjoyed reliving it for you. Mm, thank you so much for being here. Wasn't that so good? I love Ellen Ochoa. And what an honor to have seven schools named after you. She has a children's book out. We are all scientists. You can also visit her website, Ellen Ochoa, O-C-H-O-A dot com. Check out all of her resources that she has there. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening to Here's Work. It's interesting. This show is written and researched by Heather Jackson, Sharon McMahon, Valerie Hoback, and Amy Watkin. Edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder. And it's hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. We'll see you again soon.